Hey, Deviants, it's been a minute, but don't you worry, your favorite podcast is back. So get ready for this episode of Dark and Devious. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. Um, as Chris said, it's been a minute. Uh, we took a little break uh, just to catch up on life. Um, a lot of was going on, but we are back. It feels good to be back. Um, and we are hope that you're back with us and didn't leave us. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. That's the advantage to hitting the subscribe button. Mm-hmm. Like even if we don't have a new episode every week, when we do, you will it'll pop up right at the top of your feed. And then it's like a little surprise gift. Yeah. Who doesn't love just like a little surprise something in your in your uh, subscription feeds? I mean, as long as it's a good surprise, not everything's a good surprise. Oh. So, <laughs> but yeah, we are a gift. We are the gift givers of the world right now. <laughs> but Chris, um, so we were away for a bit. Um. I had some stuff going on, but do you want to start and share some of your happenings? Oh, sure. Um, Let's see. I'm like trying to put myself in the mindset of what we talked about last time. Um, Gosh. So last time we talked, it was like mid-August. So um, end of August just flew by really fast. You know, I know I think I talked a little bit about the state fair, went to the state fair, had a great time walked my legs off i was so freaking tired at the end of that day uh-huh. i was absolutely beat um but lots of pickle things that seems to be the trend lately lots i of love pickle pickled things, things. I, pickled everything fried fried pickle chips are like a mm. highlight for me and yeah. pickle lemonade was really good pickle lemonade yeah, it was it was actually it was very surprising. I was I was shocked at how much I liked it. So I mean, I definitely know that I would try it. So <laughs> uh yeah, I need they someone needs to like bottle that. Like Trader Joe's, if you're listening, let's get a distributor for pickle lemonade. I bet I bet that would sell. Mm-hmm. It would. Um and oh gosh let's see yeah and well and speaking of trader joe's like we're getting into all of the the fall products are dropping so that's got gotten me really busy at work um so many things coming in lots of new stuff lots of returning favorites so that's been keeping me busy on that front and um, we just started rehearsing again for the Twin Cities Game and Chorus, which I'm super excited for. Uh, it's funny because I we did like this little getting to know you thing on one of the first uh, one of the I almost said one of the first episodes. Like I think of rehearsals like episodes, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, I go blending in my brain. Uh, one of our first rehearsals, we did this little getting to know you thing. 
and I had to share something like interesting about myself. And I'm like, I have a true crime podcast with my friend Patrick. And everybody was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. So I'm hoping that maybe maybe some of our new listeners will be uh, some of my fellow singers. I'm but. I'm sure there are. Um, and we were actually <laughs> talking about this earlier, how you have a, a coworker, I think, that like is like all caught up and like super anxious and excited yes. for new episodes. Oh, oh yeah, I've been getting requests at work for uh, for some new episodes. So I'm I'm glad we're we're getting another one in the books here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same with me at my work. So I mentioned. I think it was two episodes ago, um, our central dean for our central campuses uh, loves our podcast. And she was pestering me like a few weeks ago. She she was like, I'm all caught up. She was like, when's the next episode coming out? And I was like, I don't know. But it's cool to hear that like people are excited about it. And something that uh, this person actually did was she started like a like an employee spotlight where it's like each week or like bi-weekly I don't know how often it's gonna be but she's gonna share it in an email um one of the employees at our campuses like not not side hustle so not not like a job but like someone's like passion or hobby or thing that they do and I was I the that. very first edition and it was our podcast and yes. I was getting private messages on like our server from people that I have not even met. I've only seen their names on like email uh, chains and they're like, I started listening last night, like, like ranting and raving, like people love it. Um, it's so fun. I love so that. So thank you, Roxanne. I'm sure you boosted a, a lot of new listeners for us. I know. I think, you know, word of mouth really is the best advertising. And and I think when people hear about your passion for something like that, and and when they know that you're really excited about it, then they want to see what all the excitement is about. And, and I feel like our enthusiasm is infectious, isn't it? <laughs> it is. We are addictable. um Um, now if only if only one of our listeners has a connection to like a uh a podcast firm that can hire us um (laughs) that would be lovely that would be fun Mm -hmm. um okay so we we covered a lot of just our oh now how have you not brought up like your biggest life change yet my biggest life change um my biggest life change is one of the littlest things you'll ever meet and see and that is last week um my husband and I we drove down to San Antonio and got our newest member of our family um her name is Hera with an x so x e r a um, I've been chatting with the foster family that had her for a little over a week. And then we finally had a free, free day where we went down and, um, I had, I had lined up five different cats at five different fosters to go see. And Hera was the first one and we fell in love instantly and she came home. And after a few days of settling in, we introduced her to Yuna and Yuna is absolutely in love with her. She washes her. 
She's the friend that Yuna has always needed and wanted because as our loyal listeners know, my eldest cat, Winnie, absolutely hates Yuna. Um, <laughs> and Yuna's in love with Winnie. So it's pretty sad to watch those interactions. But um, yeah, so now Yuna and Hera are best friends and she's adorable. She's very, very tiny. She's 3.5 pounds. Um, she could fit and- in your pocket. Mm-hmm. And she'll always be small. She was the runt of the litter. Uh, the fosters had had her for about six months. And um, they said her her litter mates kept growing, but Hera just stopped. So she's going to be a, a tiny little girl her whole life. And we are obsessed with her at the moment. That's great. And I mean, she's got this little tiny face and these big eyes. I mean, mm-hmm. Her eyes are adorable. huge. And I think the cutest feature about her is she has, I mean, cats don't really have eyebrows. They have eyelashes, but she has what would be eyebrows right above her. Her eyes are these two little orange stripes, but they're also like kind of wrinkled and like scrunched together. So it looks like she's worried all the time. Um, (laughs) um, I've seen other cat faces like that and yeah it's Mm -hmm. so adorable (laughs) (laughs) yeah she's so cute um yoshi the dog has not met her yet but we know he will be in love with her he loves cats the question is how is she gonna feel um right right especially because yoshi's so big (laughs) yeah he's a big boy and she is three three and a half pounds (laughs) well fingers crossed that goes well when you said that uh, Yuna really likes to to groom her, right? Like, to yeah, and... Yuna washes her. Yeah, um, she likes washing her face, but what she likes washing even more is her crotch. Um, <laughs> and but and Yuna also washes me, so now I have mixed feelings about Yuna licking my face. So... <laughs> it's like, hold on, cat. Like, I know where that mouth has been. Right. It's like. Sure, an hour ago, we're fine. But if you just came from Hera, you were not touching me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love that our our dogs, um, Stella, our our older dog, and Cole will um, our our newer dog. Mm-hmm. Um, she will she'll like lick his ears and like like lick his face and just do like that kind of like mothering stuff right and when they when she does that it just warms my heart so much and yeah even though cole can be a little um like he'll kind of like put his paw in her face sometimes like mom you know like yeah I like knock it off yeah um it's still it's so endearing and i love that they that they get along you know, even if they play fight all the time, um, yeah, they they're usually p- pretty good buds. So, also, this is I think a great opportunity to to remind our listeners, like when you're looking for a furry friend, you know, or scaly friend or whatever kind of friend you're looking for, uh, go to shelters, fosters, like. Yes. I I think that like you will find the most amazing companions there mm-hmm. and you don't have to go to like a breeder. Exactly. Um, There's that phrase adopt don't shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and also breeding has ruined so many breeds. 
Right. Like, they have destroyed. Like pugs are not supposed to look like that. They're they can't breathe. It was all for like royalty in England. They're like, let's make this dog to look like this. And now the poor things have like a terrible respiratory system. Anyways, we could go on about that. Right. But, <laughs> but our point is adopt don't shop because they need homes and they're full of love. Right. I mean, and and a lot of a lot of times like that's these these animals last chance is you mm-hmm. know, a shelter and there are so many pets in need of homes and not all of them get them and sometimes they just have to be put down and we don't want that no. we want every animal to have a home exactly um well i okay i have one more notable thing and then do you have anything else? No, no. no? It's been okay. pretty quiet on my end. So uh, my partner introduced me to, uh, well, and he's always, he's like the Netflix, like, the, he's like a Netflix guru when it comes to finding good shows, especially like good foreign shows. And he found this German show called Dear Child. And it's six episodes. And holy crap, is it a wild ride? And it has the most satisfying ending I have ever experienced i think possibly of all time (laughs) and it's it's about this woman um like she's been held captive and there's there's it's like there's this little it's like they've got this little family unit there's like two children and and a mom and then like the dad has been has basically been like controlling the the children and the mom's lives from the beginning and um, they're like hidden away in this and like locked away um, and um, there is an escape break you know breakout and then this woman gets discovered and then people are trying to piece together like who who are you really um how is this tied to this other missing person? Uh, and also like who is responsible for doing this? And it is, uh, it is really a great six episodes. Like, I think you would love it. It sounds right up my alley. And yeah. like, as you're telling this, my, uh, my head was actually thinking of real cases that I know. Um, about things like this like there's the girl in the box that lived in a box in her guy's bed for like many many years um there's a woman who was held captive by her own father in their basement um for decades and she had many children with him um yeah there's i know quite a few like this and it is incredibly disturbing um so yeah i think i will check that out uh dear child Dear child, yeah. Cool. 
good recommendation. Um, I have some recommendations too, but I will hold off on those um, for next week. Um, so that way we can all binge Dear Child this week and next week we can uh, dive into something else. All right. That sounds great. Well, I'm excited to see what you've got to bring to the table this week. So if you're ready, I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay, Chris. So this week, um, we are going back in time a bit to the 1940s. Ooh, okay. I feel like this is a time period we haven't touched on a whole lot. No, not much. Uh, We've been before the 40s, definitely after the 40s, but never Mm. really around this time too much. And we're going to West Virginia in the United States, and we are going to be discussing the mysterious disappearance of the Sodder children. Ooh, I feel like I might have... I might have gotten like a summary of this somewhere along the way. Maybe. Um, Uh, I've heard it covered on a few different podcasts in my years of listening. um, And I've also read about it before. And it is a cold case, just so everyone knows. This is an unsolved case um, with lots of theories. Um, But before we get to those theories, we need to get into the actual story itself, starting with the Sodder family themselves. All right. Oh, I'm I'm excited because I I'm like thinking of this, and I definitely have heard something about this before, but it's really foggy in my memory. So I'm really excited to get reviewed on this topic. Yay! Well, I'm glad I can bring that to your ears. <laughs> um. So we're going to start with the father, George Sodder, who was born Giorgio Sodu on November twenty third, eighteen ninety five, in. Tula Sardinia, uh, which is in Italy. And oh immigrated... Sardinia. Okay. Sardinia, thank you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I should I should put a like disclosure right now that um there are some Italian words in this story. And I any of my Italian listeners, I am sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, he was born in Sardinia and then immigrated to the United States as a teenager. It's unclear why he made the choice to move, but soon after, uh, Giorgio adopted a more Americanized version of his name and began working for the railroad in Pennsylvania. Eventually, George made his way down to West Virginia and ended up marrying another Italian immigrant named Jenny Cipriani. Uh, Jenny was only seven years old his junior, so not a huge age gap. And she actually immigrated over to the United States as a very young child. By 1945, uh, Jenny and George had 10 children, which that's a lot of mouths to feed. And their children were John, Joseph, Marion, George Jr., Maurice, Martha, uh, Luis, Jenny, Betty and Sylvia. All the children. For a second, ranked... when the first two, uh, when the first two both had J names, I was like, "Oh God, please tell me they didn't <laughs> give all all ten of them J names." I know. I mean, there's <laughs> there's only three, if you don't count the junior for George Junior. 
Um, but all 10 of these kids, they did range in quite a broad broad age range, which I think is actually good if you're going to have this many kids. Um, and they were in between the ages of 3 to 22. And oh, wow. nine of them still lived at home. So George was actually a very successful business owner. And he owned a trucking company called the Dempsey Transfer Company. And as a result, the Sodders were doing very well financially um, compared to a lot of their neighbors, um, especially post-Depression, post-war, uh, and also, you know, having 10 kids to feed and clothe. Um, it was amazing that he had such a great business, and they actually owned one of the largest homes in their neighborhood. Um, it was a large two-story farmhouse, and it was located approximately two miles north of town yeah i can't imagine that all 10 kids had their own bedroom but oh no no, no. If, if you only had to share with like one other sibling that would be preferable mm -hmm. <laughs> rather I than like having to share with three or four siblings yeah and i'm pretty sure just based on my recollection of growing up near old farm homes um it seems like the attic was used a lot more than it is these days. Um, so, and almost every big, large house, you know, pre-1980s had a decent attic. So I imagine that actually allowed for some more, like, living space, too. So all was well. Everyone was great, happy, hunky-dory, until Christmas Eve of 1945, which this is our second case that has occurred on Christmas Eve. If everyone remembers, I covered John Bonet Ramsey, who was murdered on Christmas Eve. So Christmas Eve of 1945 started off happy enough for the Sauter family. The children were excited and feeling the Christmas spirit, especially when Marion, the oldest daughter, arrived home from work that evening with additional gifts for everyone. George and Jenny went to bed around 10 p.m., taking their youngest child, Sylvia, with them. They gave the other children permission to stay up later to play with their new toys and listen to Christmas music on the radio. Marion chose to stay up with the younger ones to make sure everyone was okay and basically follow the rules. <laughs> no rowdy parties after mom mm -hmm. and dad go to bed. Gonna eat all that Christmas candy, get on a sugar rush. <laughs> So the two older boys, um, which I should note, this is, I mentioned that um, nine of the, ch or um, not nine, but most of the children still lived at home. Um, everyone was there this evening, though, because it was Christmas Eve. The older boys, John and George Jr., they went to bed around 11 p.m., um, but could not recall later if any of their siblings were still awake at the time. It was typically Marion's job to get her younger sisters to bed. But she didn't do that that night because she fell asleep on the sofa while reading a magazine. At approximately 12.30 a.m., the phone rang. Jenny woke up and answered it, but she didn't recognize the voice on the other end of the line. It was a woman who asked for a man whose name Jenny didn't recognize. Hmm. She heard laughter in the background, and she believed that this was just someone who dialed the wrong number, probably had a few drinks on Christmas Eve, and she just promptly hung up the phone. She then walked around the house, checking to make sure that everything was okay. She saw that Marion was asleep on the couch, 
but didn't see any of the other children in the living room. Assuming that everyone else had gone back to bed, Jenny did the same. However, just shortly after, she was awakened once again at 1 a.m. by what sounded like a rock hitting the roof. It was windy and a bit stormy that night, so she didn't think too much about the strange noise and drifted back to sleep. But then again, just 30 minutes later, Jenny was woken up once more. This time for a far more ominous reason. The bedroom was filling up with smoke. Oh my gosh, yeah, that would be horrifying. Mm-hmm. So in a panic rush, she woke up George and the two of them ran out of the room. According to Jenny, the back wall of the den, located across the hallway from their bedroom, was already engulfed in flames. The lights, which had still been on when Jenny was first alerted to the smoke, went out. George and Jenny ordered their children to leave the house and ran out the front door. Marion woke up and ran to her parents' bedroom, where she found three-year-old Sylvia and picked her up. They made it out of the burning home and met their parents outside. At this point, John and George Jr. woke up and realized what was happening, which I have a little bit mixed. I do not want to blame these parents at all, but I do have a little bit mixed feelings about them rushing themselves out the door before making sure their kids were out, especially a three-year-old that was in their bed. Um... Again, I do not want to blame them because no one knows what you're going to do in a circumstance, right? Um, right, and but- also, I'm. It's like you're you're kind of battling your fight or flight instinct there, yes. where, like, I'm sure the you know, probably your pro- most primal instinct is to be like, okay, I have to get myself out of here. I need to get myself to safety. Yeah, that's like what they say on a plane. Like, you never help someone else put on their breathing mask until you have yours. Like, because you cannot help someone if you yourself are not okay. Right. And then suddenly you're the one who needs to to be saved. Exactly. So I just want to state that before going into my next portion, because due to minor discrepancies in the various stories told about the events of the night, it's impossible to recreate exactly what happened. Because, for example, one account states that John and George Jr. attempted to get the attention of the other children on the second floor merely by yelling at them before running down the stairs themselves. They reportedly heard one of their younger brothers call back to them, but there was no communication with the five children who never made it out. Then another account Um, has John shaking the children awake before he and George made their escape. So he actually went and made sure that they were aware that they needed to leave before fleeing themselves. Um, And then also, it is also um, debated that how Marion went to go get Sylvia. It is debated that they don't recall exactly because it was such a rush, but Jenny and George may have actually instructed the older children to help the younger ones get out. Um, I feel a- like the, the most likely thing in my mind would be like you're probably like rushing you're yelling like you're especially if the the house is filling up with smoke mm-hmm. and you have um, 10 kids to like try to get out it sounds very disorienting and 
I just think about like how if I was picturing what I would be like if I were in that circumstance, like I would probably be like just running around like a chicken with my head cut off, mm-hmm. but like like screaming like at least I I could warn other people that something was going on right. if they weren't awake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think you're pretty accurate. I think it was just very discombobbled. It was a hot mess. Everyone was panicked and rushing. And unfortunately, people got lost in the shuffle. Once outside, though, George and the two older sons rushed to get a ladder to prop against the side of the house so the other children could simply just climb down from their bedroom window. However, the ladder, which was always, and I mean always, kept nearby, was mysteriously nowhere to be found. Desperate to save his children, George attempted to back a truck up to the house, but inexplicably, neither the truck on the property would start. So there were two trucks, and both of them just failed to start when they had been fully operable earlier that day. That is so suspicious. I mean, like, granted one thing where, like, sometimes when, like, where there's something where I absolutely know exactly where it is and it's always in the same place. And then like the one time when I really, really need it, it's not there for some reason. Mm -hmm. And I'm like tearing apart the house, trying to find it like, okay, that happens sometimes. But then to have like two trucks and this, and the dad is the owner of a trucking company. So I imagine he probably, keeps his trucks in yeah decent order that's his business (laughs) yeah so and and then to just have them both not like one is like twist of fate coincidence but like two is suspicious as hell Mm -hmm. and what i why i emphasize that the letter was always by the house um george had actually used it just a few days prior to get up onto the roof and put it right back next to the house where it always was stored. So Hmm. explain that. So given that they could not get access to the upstairs, Marion ran to a neighbor's house for help. Mrs. Davis attempted to phone the fire department, but she was unable to get through to the switchboard operator. And there was no way to directly dial the fire department back in 1945 weird okay so it, it like what did the switchboard operator just like take a break like a coffee break um we'll we'll get in the middle that. of the night like yeah we'll get to that this is just it's it's it, if it wasn't so tragic it would be comedic of how many things oh yeah go wrong like if it was if it wasn't such a horrible thing happening like it would just be it, like it's ridiculous the lo- the number of things that go wrong yeah like to your point if this didn't end um pretty morbidly it reminds me of like a spongebob episode where spongebob has like a fire in the background and he's running around with his arms up like you know it's like it's just pure pure chaos and everything is going wrong which i think is hilarious that the that there's a like he lives under the sea how could there be a fire Right, like, how do they grill burgers at the Krabby Patty? Right, uh, that's a great question. (laughs) 
But I anyway. wonder if anybody's like scientifically been like, well, actually, like if you do this chemical reaction, it sure. Could... <laughs> I'm sure there's someone has investigated that. But then um, Thomas Smith, another neighbor, he'd been driving around at 1 a.m. and saw that the home was on fire. He turned and drove back to Fayetteville, where he was able to reach the fire chief by phone from his home. Unfortunately, the fire department was short-staffed, possibly due to the holiday, and did not arrive at the Sodders' home until seven, several hours later at 8 a.m. And remember, this all started around 1 a.m. Oh my gosh. I and mean, they were two miles from town. And it's, I mean, and this is the 40s, so it's not like we're we're going two miles by foot. Yeah, they had trucks. They should have been there in less than I 10 mean, minutes. Even by horse, it, would, it wouldn't take that long to get there. No, no. I'm By walking, it would not take seven hours to get there. Right. It's two miles. <sighs> Anyways. The fire chief, um, F.J. Morris, reportedly attributed the slow response to difficulties driving the fire truck, which he did not know how to do. What? How are you? How can you be a fire chief and not know how to drive the fire truck? Exactly. And also, why is there not somebody on duty who can drive the fire truck? Like, right? Because it. the holiday doesn't mean everyone goes home. Nothing bad happens. I get it. People want to be with their families on Christmas Eve. Also, if anything, like Christmas time, people are putting out candles. Like, if anything, there's more of a risk for fires. Exactly. So you, need to, you need to be on. You, you need to be on guard for anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also around the holidays, there are more incidents. It doesn't matter what holiday for a multitude of reasons. People drink and drive. People. Um, to your point decorate with flammable objects oh yeah and this is like an era where people used to do like the tinsel on the tree and then they would have the little um like they would have the little like holders for real candles on yeah. a tree and like this tree has been sitting in your house for probably the month of december so it's like all dried out and, mm -hmm. and you're putting flames right next to it and if you've ever seen a dry pine tree catch fire it goes up really really fast yeah it's like a book of matches mm -hmm. but and then speaking about burning fast um some reports stated that the home took only 45 minutes to burn down but it did smolder and continue to burn for about four hours. At daylight, the police searched for debris on Christmas morning, but the thoroughness of that search would become a point of contention. George and Jenny were understandably overcome with grief over their devastating loss. However, at least initially, they appeared to accept that five of their children, Maurice, Martha, Louise, Jenny and Betty had in fact perished in the fire. The state Gosh, fire marshal, especially at Christmas, to just oh, be like yeah. a huge chunk of your family is just gone. Yes, five like people. a time, yeah, a time when you're supposed to be coming together as a family and and celebrating and and sharing joy and love and everything, and then to have something like that happen is that's. Mm -hmm. devastating yeah 
The state fire marshal's office advised George not to disturb the scene in any way until they'd had a chance to conduct an investigation. They went on to conclude that the children had died in the fire and opted to not investigate further. George decided that he wanted to create a memorial garden on the site, and on December 29th, just days after the fire, Jenny's brother, Jimmy, used a bulldozer to fill the basement with dirt. A funeral service for the five children was held that day at the site, but George and Jenny were too distraught to attend. The coroner's office convened an inquest the following day, ultimately concluding that the fire was likely caused by faulty wiring. This seemed an unlikely explanation to the Sodders. However, as they had just recently had the home rewired and inspected, there were more questions than answers. Boy, that is, that's a big question mark right there. Uh, like, you obviously hired a professional. It was inspected. Like, mm, I don't know if I buy that. I mean, I feel like that's a very easy out, especially when a really a thorough investigation didn't really happen. And then, of course, then they they just destroyed the crime. The, the, I say crime scene, just assuming that there's something sinister going on here. But like the scene of the incident is like, OK, you just basically bulldozed it and filled it in with dirt. Yeah. Which, Power- I mean, was out of love. Yeah. He was trying to make a nice memorial garden, but also like there's evidence in that basement. Yeah, there. Well, and also, I assume that they weren't able to recover any remains. That they just assumed that any bodies would have been incinerated. But then again, it takes a lot. It takes an extreme amount of heat to burn a body, and even in you know, even in that case, there's usually still fragments left behind like you probably find bone yes and i like where your head's going because we'll get to that all right which is why i'm covering this story today because this is not just a story about a house fire there's definitely some nefarious things that will become point of interest so as we just mentioned there should have been body parts there should have been human remains left behind Um, that even a brief inspection would have found. So the question is raised, and that is, did the Sodder children die in the house fire? For the next two years, George and Jenny attempted to get on with their lives. They were still grieving, but had accepted the authorities' conclusion that five of their children had perished on Christmas Eve. However, this would all change in 1947. That year, an article published in Look magazine caught their attention. It contained a photo featuring several children, and both George and Jenny felt that one of the kids bore an exact resemblance to their quote-unquote deceased daughter, Betty. They had always been troubled by the fact that no substantial human remains were recovered during the search, and once they saw the photo, the Siders became convinced that their children did not die in the fire. They hired the first of several private investigators to help them investigate their chill- their chilling suspicion. 
Though it couldn't be proven that the girl in the photo was Betty Sauter, George and Jenny remained certain that their children had been abducted and that the fire was set to cover it up. Interesting. Now, did in your uh, in your research, did it did it say what the context of the photo? It was a school in New York. Um, so it's just like, you know, you'll see random magazines of like a school like, like did a play or something. Right. And it gets covered in a random magazine or in a random newspaper article. It was something like that. Oh, OK. It was around the same time that they saw the photo, though, that they learned that Fire Chief Morris had allegedly found a human heart among the debris and buried it in a box on the property. Okay, that's... uh, (laughs) I have so many questions Yeah, it's a wild... So, like, apparently bone will burn, but a heart won't. And also you find human remains as an authority and you don't tell people, but you put it in a box and bury it. Yeah, I I don't even know where to begin with that. Right. Again, this is allegedly. Yeah. But when it asked seems like he... something that would make a great legend, you know. Right. Yes, very much. But when asked why he didn't notify them of this before, he stated simply that he thought he'd already told them. <laughs> I feel like that's something that you don't really forget that no. to mention. And I feel like if you find someone's child's heart, they're not going to be like, okay, yeah, just put it in a box. Like, yeah, like at least give them something to give them closure. Uh huh. Like, uh, even if it's just a body part, it's at least a little something. I mean, it makes me think of the, um, you know, so with September 11th uh, victims. Like, they are still trying to identify human remains, and it's been 22 years. And, you know, like, and in fact, uh, you know, kind of in the the general coverage of that lately, that, like, two more victims from that day, like, some bits of remains were actually identified. And it's like, holy crap, like... It just shows you the scale of something like that. And then also that with the advancement of technology, you can, you know, even if it's just a tiny fragment of bone, you can figure it out who it belongs to. I mean, obviously they didn't have that back in the, in the 40s, but um, I think it does help give people some measure of closure. To, no, it does. You're right. Yeah. Or like when people go missing at sea, like... Oh, yeah. Like finding like their flipper or something like it just it's uh, it's it's oddly comforting. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, um, Chief Morris went with Jenny and George to the property and pointed out the location of where he had buried the box. They dug it up and it was there. And George took it straight to the local funeral director. However, this also is weird. After examining the organ, the funeral director confirmed that it was not a human heart, but a beef liver. Uh, oh my gosh. Like after all that, like first I was thinking, I was, you know, if this was a TV show, 
he would have gotten to the box and the box would have been empty. <laughs> right, exactly. But, but no, to uh, a beef liver. Yeah. Well, and also like what this is, you know, a significant amount of time has passed. Yes. Two since, years. Yeah. Which I'm amazed that anything is still left in the box. But also but, we don't know when the box was buried. No, that's that's true. This could yeah. be uh, some kind of red herring. And with the with um, director Morris being so like nonchalant and coy about it, like did he do it last month and then make up this story? Like, what's going on with director Morris? That's what I want to know. Mm. Um, but then notably. The box with the liver was placed outside of the Fiona director's office um, and it mysteriously vanished. And at first they thought maybe the waste disposal had come and taken it, but no other bins or rubbish was removed. Just this box. Hmm. Yes. Um, And then later, Morris did admit that the organ was in fact a beef liver. He claimed to have lied about finding a human heart in the rubble to convince George and Jenny Sauter that their children died in the fire and to give them a sense of closure. So now he's saying he he did this so that they would rest, right? Um, but it still just seems very shady. And it's, if anything, unprofessional. And also, it's such a harebrained scheme. And also, it would only be one. Like, uh, do, you, do you have four more beef mm-hmm. livers, I guess, to... Uh, and honestly, if this is what he wanted to do to, like, help them have closure, he should have been a little smarter about it. And maybe, um, I don't know, got some bones. Something that would not burn. Um I guess his his heart was in a good place, but his head was not. Or his liver was in. <laughs> there's there's a there's a joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Yep. Several decades later, um, it's difficult, if not impossible, to definitively answer if any remains were found in that initial search. Some accounts state that no remains whatsoever were recovered. However, there are two contemporary accounts that suggest otherwise. According to the State Sentinel, on December 26 of 1945, quote, tin roofing and other debris was removed and a part of one body was found. Then on January 2nd of 1946, the Montgomery Herald had this to say. No more parts of the bodies were found other than as reported the day following the fire. That small portion of spinal column, apparently that of a little girl, was placed in a container and it in turn placed in the center of the basement into which the others had fallen. So it must be noted that neither newspaper cited any sources or creditable people for this information. That's so, I mean, I guess, you know, we like to think that that uh, reporting was you know, accurate uh, back then. But uh, the truth is that, you know, a lot of the times it was just like, this is what I heard. And, you know, they they don't necessarily cite the source. Mm -hmm, Exactly. I mean, 
at the end of the day, a reporter's job is to sell newspapers. And mm -hmm. we have countless tabloids to prove that they just make stuff up. Right. So I think it was more more or less made up just for clout. Um, But then to your point, Chris, some people, including George and Jenny, argue that the fire did not burn hot enough to fully cremate five people and that if anyone perished in that fire, more remains would have been discovered. After all, fruit jars, bed springs, toys, a stove, and part of a dictionary were found among the debris. So if a book doesn't burn, how will a human skeleton? Mm -hmm. Jenny contacted a local crematorium employee who informed her that even a 2,000 degree Fahrenheit fire burning for two hours would still leave human bones intact. So she started conducting her own experiments, attempting to burn chicken bones into ash for multiple hours, and every attempt failed. Oh, interesting. I love that she did her own research here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was, I mean, she's determined to find her kids. I mean, a mother's, a good mother's bond with her children is strong. Um, but also she used chicken bones, which are much smaller and more fragile than a human skeleton. And if they won't burn, how would a human? Mm -hmm. I mean, also then you hopefully get to enjoy plenty of fried chicken when, <laughs> when doing this Maybe. experiment. Maybe. Or um, however else you'd like to prepare your chicken. Right. And to further argue their point, um, the Sodders did detail that their basement contained a coal furnace and they had plenty of coal in stock down there. So that would have made the fire burn even hotter. Mm -hmm. Several years after the mysterious tragedy, four people, Jimmy Cipriani, Carl B. Vickers, F.J. Morris, and Reverend James F. Frama testified to having found bits of what appeared to be human bone among the debris. However, it was unclear if George and Jenny were told about this at the time or if they had to wait to hear about this in a testimony. So George and Jenny are saying at this time, many years later, that they didn't find body parts, they did not burn clearly if my chicken bones aren't burning and the crematorium staff says that they would have not burnt. But now all of a sudden they're saying, oh, no, no, we found body parts, but we just didn't tell you. Which that is the cruelest, if, like if they really did at the time find remains of any sort and then just didn't tell them, that mm -hmm. is incredibly cruel on their part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's cruel on their part. And then also, like, it sounds to me like they're trying to say that um, they found bones to basically save their own butts. Yeah, they're like, uh, no need to look any further into this case. Like, right. Nothing to see here. It's like they never investigated it properly. 
and now they're I just. I think trying. you just made up a new word. I did make up. I realized yeah. that after I said it, I was like, <laughs> "Inspectigated" is not a real. If word. you're inspecting and investigating something, you're inspectigating it. Exactly, it's a word. It's a word. I like it. I mean, I, <laughs> we we just defined it. Uh, you know, it's where language is always evolving. Mm-hmm. It's very true. There's a new word. Inspectigated. Yes. Anyways, we're gonna inspectigated this even more which now i'm using it improperly it's out of tense but anyway <laughs> <laughs> um so in 1949 george Sauter did have the site of the former home excavated and chris this is interesting after a thorough search was conducted six small bones were discovered four of which were human and had come from the same person these four bones all lumber vertebrae showed no signs of fire damage, but came from an individual who, according to estimates, was around 16 or 17. Interesting. Maurice, the oldest of the five children who uh, supposedly perished, was just 14 at the time. So either if these were Maurice's bones, maybe he was developing a little bit quicker yeah, um, maybe he was getting like he was ahead of the game on uh, osteoporosis <laughs> um, or like, you know, just growing faster. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's only if they are his bones. So they don't really line up perfectly. But it was later concluded, which this is actually a little bit chilling. It was later concluded that these bones came from the dirt used to fill in the Sodder's basement and were not related to the family of the fire. So where what? do they get this dirt and whose bones are these? Uh, Yeah, where did this dirt come from? And now we've got possibly a whole other crime on our hands. Yeah, which and is... interestingly, I could not find, like, did they investigate this? Um, I found no information that they looked into this mysterious person's bones or I really want to know, like, did, like, are these bones in some facility somewhere? Like, I don't because know. This is still an unsolved case. Like, is this like, are the bones like, could, could they be tested? Like, especially with how much DNA is out there in to be like compared um i i would be really interested to be like oh does somebody have like a distant relative that th that these bones are related to that right. distant relative or something yeah but then also like we don't know how fresh are these bones right like or or did we dis disturb like some ancient grave site <laughs> exactly i mean people lived in the western some Virginia teenager who died for... like 200 years ago I was thinking even like older than that because people lived in the West Virginia area for like centuries. So mm -hmm. whose bones, how old, where they come from and why, why are they there? <laughs> We're coming up with lots of good questions here today. <laughs> yes. Um, but continuing efforts to locate the children would not end. And George and Jenny offered up a $5,000 reward for information leading to the discovery of their missing children, which they soon doubled. They also used flyers, and they built a billboard at the site of the house, 
to um, disseminate information and they had massive pictures of the children everywhere. Then, near, uh, more than 20 years later, in 1967, Jenny received a letter postmarked in Central City, Kentucky. Inside, there was a photo of a young man and a cryptic message written on the back. Luis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, Lil Boys, and then the number A90132, or it ended in 35 because it was handwritten and a little, little messy. Jenny and George both believed the young man strongly resembled their son, Luis, who had been less than a week shy of his 10th birthday at the time of the fire. So 20 years later, he would be a young man in um, 30, 35-ish, which that would explain why maybe the number 35 was there. The Sodders hired another PI to investigate the photo, but sadly, he took their money and ran. Oh, I hate that. Yes. George followed up on this and several leads in person as he went to Central City himself, but he was unable to find any clues or context. So now come the theories of if their children did not burn in that fire, where are they? George and Jenny Sauter believed in these three possible scenarios for why their children were abducted. First, they were victims of human trafficking, which did exist in the United States and in the years during and following World War II was actually pretty common. Two, they were taken to another location and killed by a former employer or associate as an act of revenge. Um, and this is heavily um, supported because, as I mentioned, there are Italian families. And back then, um, which still today, too, um, there exists small Italian communities all around the country. They tend to tick together. Um, and George and Jenny both were very, very vocal about their dislike for Mussolini. Who, oh, interesting. Yes, who many Italians, past and present, love. And it got to the point where there would be like verbal arguments, altercations just over Mussolini. And they believe maybe there could have been someone with connections that did not like George and Jenny sharing their disdain for their lovely leader. And they may have kidnapped their children as revenge or punishment. Oh, that is an, an interesting twist. And I mean, and then like at the, by this point too, like Mussolini is gone. Like the war is over by the end of 1945. Um, so it all, it would almost seem like why bother? Like why bo bother defending the honor of, of a dead man like Mussolini? Exactly. Like, it doesn't really make sense, but also if someone, if one of their Italian neighbors was, you know, in the mafia and they didn't like what they were hearing, you know? Yeah, I'm, and I mean... <laughs> and they'd already, they'd already, like, argued and shouted at George and Jenny time and time again, and George and Jenny were still talking negatively about, you know, a, a former big, big wig mob boss 
They can say, all right, they're not listening. I'll show them what's up. Who knows? I could, I could see, I mean, look at politics today. I mean, would we really put it past someone, uh, you know, all now, oh my gosh, quick math. Uh, what is that like 80 years ago? Yeah. 80 ish. Yeah. So like, would we really put it past somebody to do something violent because they don't like the political leanings of of someone right. at this time period. Correct. That's exactly. a possibility. And well, and you know, the other thing that that got me that made me kind of like raise an eyebrow is the fact that they had the biggest house in mm -hmm. the neighborhood. It seemed like he was a successful businessman. Um, it makes me wonder, you know, when you're at the top, you've kind of got the envy of everybody else around you so was mm -hmm. someone did someone have a motive for being jealous or that they um thought that they had earned their success um through ill means or something like that right you know or they see that and they're like that should have been my yeah, you, you like see my, that all the time, which I don't understand. I mean, it's it it's goes back to simple jealousy. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a possible motive, I would think, but I, it makes me wonder because I'm sure they weren't looking at it as uh as a crime at the mm -hmm. time. So they mm -hmm. probably missed a lot of opportunity to be like okay, let's ask around who doesn't like this family, who might have had a, a beef with them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a true point. They may not have considered it back then. But then also regarding um, maybe previous employer or employee, just days before the fire, the Sodders had been visited by an insurance salesman named Fiorenzo Genitolo who had also previously been George's employer. He urged the couple to take out life insurance policies on their children, which they refused. Genutolo reportedly became angry and threatened that their home would, quote, go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. Um, that seems, I feel like that's something that should have jogged their memory real quick. Yes. Um... And also, that's not a good salesman tactic to threaten your clients. No. Um, naturally, Genitolo seemed like a logical suspect if the fire was indeed an act of arson. It was also alleged that Genitolo's hatred of George was due to his outspoken dislike for Mussolini. And then another interesting detail for this theory is that C.J. Genitolo, Fiorenzo's cousin, reportedly offered to help the Sodders following the fire, even claiming that he intended to erect a small temporary home for them on their property. So it's like, if if Junatolo was the cause of this fire, it's pretty ironic that his cousin wanted to help them and rebuild their home for them. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, these theories, um, they're just theories. There's no concrete evidence about 
human trafficking, about the mafia being involved, or about this employer who told George three days before his house burnt down and his kids went missing that your house is going to burn down and your kids will be gone. So I don't know. I'm leaning more towards Junatolo, but again, unsolved. Wow. There were more yeah. what? I'm I'm just wowing at the the options here. <laughs> oh yeah. Like it if they did not die, these are pretty extreme circumstances. There were more mysterious details to come though. Now we're going back a little bit again, back to uh the night of the fire, December 24th, 1945. A local bus driver says that he witnessed people throwing what appear to be balls of fire in the neighborhood that Sauter's home resided in. Oh, so like a Molotov cocktail yeah, or something. Exactly. Yep. Which again um goes back to Europe, maybe mafia, I don't know. <laughs> um and then the following spring, Sylvia, the youngest daughter, found a small, hard dark green rubber ball-like object in a brush nearby. George felt it looked like a pineapple bomb hand grenade. This coupled, oh. with, yeah. So and this coupled with the noise that Jenny had heard the night of the fire on the roof, led the family to believe that the fire started on the roof and was intentionally set. There would be a number of unverified sightings of the children um, after the fire. They were seen in a vehicle, at a restaurant, and at a hotel. And um, it was noted that they were with two Italian-looking men, two Italian-looking women. And when the children were spoken to by um, other adults, the two men got very aggressive and would physically put themselves in between. Interesting. Like, they don't want the kids to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, the authorities did wind up locating that woman who called the night of the fire, um, who asked for someone that Jenny didn't recognize. And she did confirm that it was just a wrong number. Okay, well, there's one small mystery solved. Yeah, there's one answer. But also um, it's like kind of, that feels kind of like fate with like, because it was the the phone that, that woke her up at uh-huh. like, what, it was like 12, 1230 or something like yeah. that. Uh-huh. And if she hadn't gotten up, who knows if she would have noticed any of the other things or, you know, maybe she would have been in the wrong place and maybe she wouldn't have made it out of the house alive. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, remember how no one could get through to the fire switchboard, the switchboard. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there was an eerie wrinkle to the case. And that was a report that the Sodders line and the line to their neighbors had been cut. No. The police found and arrested a man who was spotted on the Sodders property around the time of the fire, stealing a block and some tackle. This man, Lonnie Johnson, claimed that he had meant to cut the power line to their home, but accidentally cut the phones. But... Like, um, both of those are really terrible. Why right. are you doing this? Exactly. Um... And also, he gave no reason for why he would want to cut either line. 
He was charged in theft, and it didn't appear that he was suspected of anything more sinister than that. But I think given the circumstances, he might have been involved in something much more sinister. Also, I feel like you, if if this were today, like maybe this person would be charged with something like involuntary manslaughter because like you, you, uh, like you basically cut off any chance of them getting help. Exactly. Yep. So to their dying days, George and Jenny believed that the answers to what happened to their children were still out there and that they could still be alive. George Sauter died in a hospital in Charleston, West Virginia in 1969 after a battle of cancer. The billboard with their children's pictures on it remained up until Jenny's death in 1989. Following her death, it was taken down and the Sauter family's property was sold. The second home built on the Sauter land still stands today. And sadly, Jenny and George went to their graves, never having closure or an answer of where their children were. In 2020, what? Oh, I was going to say, I almost wish that the billboard was still there. Yes, I do too. Like Um, as just kind of like a little reminder. Like not to forget. There is a memorial that I can share in our our Instagram and Facebook. Um, But in 2021, Sylvia the youngest and the last remaining member of the Sauter family who was only three when her home burned down passed away. Though the family's gone now, there are many out there who still hope to one day have a definite answer about what happened on that fateful night back in 1945. It's reported that John Sauter, one of the surviving sons, the one that claimed that he had woken up the other children, um, he fully accepted that his siblings perished that night, but the other surviving children did follow suit and to their dying days. And even now their children and grandchildren continue to look for answers. And that is the unsolved cold case disappearance of five solder children in Christmas Eve, 1945. That is such a compelling story. I mean, I think that um got a special guest here. <laughs> um, I think that that is the the evidence is very compelling that something else happened to these kids. And mm-hmm. it makes me wonder like whatever happened to like the the girl who looked like one of the daughters in that magazine article, like did they ever find out that yeah, like, was so it I just should... a case? I guess I glazed over that. Um, Just to answer that question, George did go. He went to that school, but because he was not a family member, he was not approved to see the child. um, He was not given access. Oh, Um, that's so sad. Like, so frustrating. Like, you know, even if it is just a case of a a kid that looked like bears a striking resemblance, like, at least you can be like, okay, it was just a coincidence i don't have to think that like my daughter is here living a new life in new york exactly um and like the restaurants that i mentioned that they were seeing that was down in florida but you know obviously it was a time before security cameras and just because someone's at a restaurant 
today if i drive down to florida next week doesn't mean they're still going to be in that area um the photo of what they believed was luis from kentucky also frustrating like it had his name on it it was sent to jenny herself mm -hmm. it looked like him just you know 20 years older but then when you go to the city where it came from no one knows anything about it which is bizarre yeah well and because like there's a postmark but that can only that can only be like narrowed down to like a city and if it's a city like did it say where where in kentucky it was from it did central city kentucky okay and i i guess i've not heard of central city kentucky but it could be a big place it could be a little place also someone can drive anywhere and mail a letter so it could be somebody from super far away just picking a random city and sending it from there exactly um or what are they just passing through and they decided you know i'm just gonna go taunt jenny and george yeah it's uh, very strange and also the fact that they didn't that they that they didn't put something kind of more definitive in there. Like, why does it have to be like a puzzle? Like, why can't you just be like, hey, I think this is your son or you know, or I know this is your son and this is where they are. You know, something <laughs> doesn't always have to be so so puzzling. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, you're right. Like, it does feel like they were being taunted a little bit. Yeah. Um, but then just to answer your question, Central City is in West Kentucky. It's um just um north of Bowling Green. So Oh, okay. And and West Virginia butts up to Kentucky, so it's on the complete other, other side. side. It's not even close. And then they lived in Fayetteville, uh, Kentucky or West Virginia. So yeah, they were nowhere hmm. near Central City. Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, like you said, it's just another puzzling, puzzling post, post message to send. But And then of I, course, I we it... didn't even think, we didn't even talk about like the supernatural possibilities of things like i mean given the fact that it looks like there were molotov cocktails and um sightings of what looked like the children of florida i don't think it was supernatural but you never know i mean there is something very special about appalachia and it just has that's that, very true. That vibe and very true. It's, you... it's gorgeous and mysterious, and the fact that it's still kind of a kind of wild and um, a lot of rural area that it just it just kind of opens itself up to be you know like to spooky stuff, which I you know yeah I is mean perfect you... going into this this season that we're going into right now. <laughs> yes, very much so. Do you remember when I covered the Bennington Triangle? Yes, yes. That was right around that area and so many people wearing red have gone missing. A man disappeared from a bus while it was moving. Um it's just wild. It's wild. Um Appalachia, you are scary. <laughs> <laughs> although beautiful you are but, scary but beautiful yeah 
But yeah, um, so I think I do think it's admirable though that like the gr- the grandchildren of the surviving children are still. I don't think they're like actively like on the ground like George and Jenny were every day, but I think they do still keep the the case open and just yeah. hope for someday to have answers. I hope that the, that there'll be some opportunity where like a a DNA test will be available to to take for maybe some of these children or grandchildren of the surviving siblings and that maybe they'll get a match. Yeah, I think that would be so cool. That would be so cool. I'm sure I'm sure with today's technology with like 23andMe and all the other like DNA test kits that you can do. I have no doubt that these grandchildren have submitted their DNA just to see if there's a match out there. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll just have to stay tuned and hope that something comes up one of these days. It's never, never too late to solve some of these. Exactly. Exactly. But until it is solved and until next time. Bye. Bye.